Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the MBN Entrepreneurship and Leadership Channel. As well as new content, we are making available selected podcasts recorded by our hosts prior to joining the MBN family. This is one of them, and so this podcast may refer to itself with a different name and identity. Enjoy the show. The centre of innovation is here, and you know this is part of the message of Project Cashmere of this whole podcast that there's something happening here which is beyond just good value for money. Like I said, having the vision is great, but the key is these concrete initiatives that drive it at the ground level. I think Paulo those people who are really they do extremely well with very limited resources, and we can take advantage of the really low costs here. You know, Poland is the land of opportunity, and I, and I like to say the East is the new West because you always used to go West in history to find more adventure and danger and prove yourself. There are some good things beginning to happen here in Krakow, but we've got a very long way to go. Good morning, good evening, good night, good day, whatever time of day it is you're listening to this Project Kazimierz podcast listener. Today on the show, we've got a very special guest, Mike Southern. Mike, rather than me try to introduce you, why don't you do it yourself? Because I'm sure you've had more practice in the same way you would if you bumped into someone at a party or some kind of business networking event. Well, uh, I'm an entrepreneur, obviously. Um, I've done lots of entrepreneurial things for the last 40 or so years, so I've uh, got a few stories to tell. I'm probably best known as co-author of a book called The Beer Mat Entrepreneur. I've sent you a copy of, which has been came out in 2002 originally. It's been revised several times since. It's been a very popular book. I think we sold 100,000 around the world in many languages, not Polish, I don't think, but we have got a Romanian version and a Thai version and a Russian version. Anyway, I spend my time, uh, I lecture at uh, City's Business School, so that'll be resuming again soon, I hope. And um, I mentor entrepreneurs, speak at events, a whole bunch of cool stuff. Okay, and I know, uh, we'll be posting show notes, and there's a, a link on your homepage to my life story. So someone mm-hmm. who's deeply interested oh, in, yeah. uh, in the story will be able to read that later. But if um, part of the objective of the podcast is to sort of pick up the entrepreneurial journey, mm-hmm. and um, but before we get onto that, could you talk about your first business success? And I've got mm-hmm. a fairly rigorous uh, definition of success in that it should make money it should make money and enough money to be slightly better than if you had got a a regular job in nest the objective of the business wasn't to make money in which case it could be very successful even if it only makes 500 quid or a thousand pounds so what what would you regard as the first thing you did that really worked uh well the first thing that really worked was a company called the instruction set which i co-founded with two friends from university back in 1984 we'd all spent a year working for another company. And then the legend is we went to a pub and we wrote on a beer mat. I'm not sure we actually did. I think that's more like a legend now. So we started the company, the three of us. And what uh, my two colleagues were good at was a thing called the Unix operating system, which computer people will know, or Linux as it's called now. But essentially it's what, what became the internet. So the internet is based on Unix and every mobile phone is based on Linux. But back in those days, back in 1984, there's only about 100 people in the world who knew it inside out. There's many millions now. So we started first morning. uh, I went to work. I sold a course to somebody who knew us from the old company who liked us. And I got money up front for a training course. So three of us went to 150 in five years. Then we had one of those offers that you can't refuse. I was flown back from America because we had an office there. And three days later, we sold the company to what's now Cap Gemini. So it was a very odd moment getting all of our 
well, as many of these staff as we could get into a pub, the Slug and Lettuce in Islington, and saying, fantastic news, just sold the company to this man with a, uh, with a suit. So a bit of an odd day. But in terms of success, I mean, yes, of course, financial is one way of measuring it. And, you know, from that day, I've not seriously had to do a day's work, but I've been, I think I retired for about 20 minutes. But, um, you know, I've done lots of things since, but it gave me a platform to do what I really want. So I've played in bands. I've done lots of entrepreneurial startups, about 20 now. Many were terrible failures, but, you know, you learn more from the failures than from the successes. And my job is typically sales, because that's the big thing I teach when I teach entrepreneurship, because, you know, how to start a business is very straightforward, you know, theory, but getting sales, because the difference between a, a good business idea is in a good business idea, they give you money for your stuff and in a bad one, they don't. And I've been in both circumstances. So that was the first big success and um, kind of haven't looked back since really. And when you, when you started that business, did you have an, because these days the sort of the entrepreneurial journey is so much sort of better understood, or at least the public mm. believe they understand it because there's much more media attention. When you started that business, did you have the idea of selling it? Was that sort of no. on the agenda or did that just come along and surprise you? No, that completely came along and surprised me. Um, you see, we started off doing training and consultancy, thinking, well, one day we'll write software, Unix software, and then we'll be like Microsoft or something. It was all a bit vague. But we never stopped doing services, really. We, need, we didn't really get into products. And it was a complete surprise when I got a call from my colleague saying, you have to get back to London now because we're about to sell the company. We've been made an offer for our 150 Unix wizards that we had. And, you know, literally it took about three days. I went from being, you know, okay to, you know, money in the bank. And it's, um, and I actually mentor people who go through this now because it's a bit like winning the lottery where you suddenly get a load of money and you feel a bit guilty about it. And some of your friends don't like you and you can't buy them a drink because that's Mike showing off because he's got lots of money. And you can't not buy them a drink because it's tight-fisted. Mike won't even buy a drink. And six weeks later, after something like that happens, you always go through a dip. We think, what did I do? Why did I do it? I wish I could go back to the old days and things aren't the same anymore. So my advice for anybody who suddenly makes a lot of money is buy a physical object. I bought a jukebox because I played in bands. I've got my own single on it. And so when I got sad after that, I just looked at the jukebox and it took me back to the happy place, a bit of anchoring here, happy place where I suddenly got more money than I thought I'd ever have. So uh, that's it. And then, then once you've got enough money, you know, I'm not exactly Bill Gates, um, you gradually over the years begin to think about the meaning of life. You know, why am I doing this? How much money do I really want? Am I having fun? Am I doing good in the world? All those kinds of things, which as you get older, you can sort of pass on to people who are coming up. But the first thing is, you know, make enough money so they can't affect you. I mean, I haven't had a mortgage since whenever, and I'm really happy because mortgages are tough sometimes, especially if the mortgage rate goes up. So mortgage for, our, for, 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 our, for our international mortgages, the British term for a, uh for a uh, housing housing credit or a housing loan and for a lot of middle class people in the UK mm. paying off the mortgage becomes a primary primary goal in life but that's not that's not that wasn't Mike's problem but um, before we get on to mentoring because one mm. of the things you've been very very strong in in your in your post exit life is helping other people and being very sort of I wouldn't say modest but very matter of fact about the fact that you had a you had a life of sort of discovery you did things you found out what happened and you did new things i'd like to go back a bit earlier and mm. to your childhood and you, what i call the entrepreneurial journey that as you were growing up did you do you remember the first time you felt the idea that doing a business of your own might be a 
might be a good idea compared to a normal job. But can you sort of unpick the the way you got the seeds of your sort of entrepreneurial spirit from? Well, this was long after I left school and actually went to university. So when I was at school, I, you know, both me and my co-author went to the same school, Wellington College, one of these English boarding schools in the 60s, which was a very strange place, which was basically geared up for teaching people Latin and how to run the British Empire, which are two skills I've not actually had to use. <laughs> so there was nothing about entrepreneurship at all. So, you know, it was expected you'd go and work for the civil service or the army or something. And then I went to university thinking, well, I'll be an engineer like my dad was. I mean, I wasn't born to be an engineer. But it was only when I went to university, well, I went to university once, got chucked out because I didn't go to lectures. I was too busy drinking beer and, and enjoying the, the nightlife of London. Uh, I was still out of boarding school, you know, give me a break. But it was when I got to university and uh, for the second time, I was at the University of Bradford and Bradford had a, a, a tradition of going to the Edinburgh Fringe and winning a fringe first. But the year I went, it was a terrible disaster and they lost money, probably due to my acting. But um, it was no, no more Edinburgh's. But me and another guy who was a technical guy, he was a sound and light guy, electrical engineer, said, well, it's obvious why we didn't make any money. We're miles out of town. So if we get a venue centrally and do a deal for the venue, uh, we'll do a show. So we did. So we did all the sound and light for 17 productions in the three weeks or whatever it was. Uh, I got the 10 o'clock slot just as the tattoo came out. We made money. And so that was the first entrepreneurial thing I did without even knowing it was entrepreneurial. But we all made a little profit. Then scanning on 18 months from then, I'm in, in another pub with the same guy, Mike Banahan, and I was selling scaffolding at the time and a bit miserable. And he said, no, 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 I'm good at Unix. Uh, I lecture for these companies in London. I'm a university lecturer now. Um, let's go and work for them. So I started, then he joined. And then it was the third guy, Peter Griffiths, who had the idea of let's start our own business. That was the instruction set. So the first time I really took entrepreneurship seriously in terms of, well, this is now my life, was 1984 when I was 31. So up till then, I thought it's a job, you know, the culture, as, as I'm sure you know, didn't exist then for everybody starting businesses. Now it's completely different now, which is a very good thing, I think. Yes, I'm, I'm, I'm guessing you must be in your late 60s now. Yeah, I'm 60, 67 this month. So not a bad guess, not a bad mm. guess. Um, no, because no, I'm, I'm 54. And it's a very important point here that quite often the sort of media image of the sort of Silicon Valley or modern entrepreneurs, you have to be young. That's part of the part of the culture. It's a young person's game. And if you're not a young entrepreneur, you're suddenly not a proper entrepreneur. And that's not really, and you, although maybe it's unusual not to have the inkling that you're going to be an entrepreneur until you're 31, in a way that can be an inspiration to our listeners. You, you could be 35 now listening and you've never thought of it until now, just in the way that Mike hadn't thought of it until he was 30. And so, um, so that, the, but the idea of making money, I think, I think, I read possibly in, or maybe I saw on one of your YouTube channels onto which we'll come later that you negotiated a deal where you got a venue for free in return, in return for doing audio and lighting and things That's right. for, for, for a venue. So, so, so you had a sense you had something of value and you negotiated something of value in return, which, and did that just come out of nowhere or did that just seem like common sense? Um, this is the great debate we have between nature and nurture. And um, yes. it came that's why, from nowhere. That's why I asked it. Uh, but my, my dad was an engineer, but he was a very successful salesman. He sold, he worked for British Leyland, Eastern Europe. He used to sell cars. Then my grandfather was a Methodist, Methodist preacher and missionary. So he was selling Methodist God to people who didn't believe in it previously. So maybe it's kind of in the genes. But no, it was just me, me and a technical guy sitting in a pub, you know, I always use the pub as a metaphor, thinking a deal. Let's do a deal where 
everybody wins. So they get all the sound and light in the venue. It was central. And the key thing was that the particular church, St. Columbus by the Castle, which had a church upstairs and a church hall downstairs, was literally outside where the Edinburgh tattoo came out at about quarter to ten. So everybody walked past our front door while standing with a sign saying, see a show, lots of naughty gags, a pound. And we sold out just because everybody thought, yeah, why not? And it was, the show was good enough when I, when I wrote the show. So, you know, it wasn't, wasn't that brilliant. But no, it was fine. And it was just this idea of the win-win, which, I've, which I now do daily, thinking, where's the win-win? Because I'm a, I'm a salesman by trade. I'm working for a company called Akinova now. It's an insurance platform. An old friend of mine, he's a, it's a startup. It's one of these tech startups. And every time I'm speaking to somebody, I'm thinking, what's the deal from both sides? Like, obviously, I'd like to sell you the software, but... What do you get in return where you think, do you know what, that's the best money we ever spent, value for money. And that's the essence of entrepreneurship, understanding what that deal is with the person that you're speaking to. Oh, and just to go back to the age thing, you know, I mentor entrepreneurs every age. I get lots of young people. I teach to university. I had 309 students, age 20 or whatever, all going to be, who knows what, all around the world. But um, I get retired people. And of course, these aren't the people who are going to, you know, rush off to Silicon Valley and start another Microsoft necessarily. But that's such a rarefied small element of what entrepreneurship is. I mean, it's a fascinating one. I've been firsthand working with these people, you know, the Bill Gateses and the, and the Steve Jobses and all of those and Eric Schmidt at, at Google and, you know, the, the Google guys. So I met all of those guys then. And it was a very, very special culture, but not for everybody. And um, what used to slightly depress me, but it was, it was clearly only about having another billion pounds. And well, I mean, how, how many boats do you want a water ski behind is the, the famous expression. So this relentless pursuit of money just for the sake of it. So you get tired of it when you get to my age, maybe your age as well. Yes. And the, I, just coming back to the sort of the mutual exchange of value, mm. I, I have a sense that that's, a, that's almost human nature, that, <clears throat> that whether you're an entrepreneur or not, it's a very good idea to think, what have you got that other people might want? Mm-hmm. The, you were in sales before you had your Edinburgh thing. So in a sense, selling is a kind of entrepreneurship because you're trying to be entrepreneurial with someone else's product. Mm. Or, or your own product. I mean, we say in sales on a beer mat, a quote from Robert Louis Stevenson, that everybody's in the business of selling something. And when you start out, especially if you're starting your own business from home or whatever, you know, you're in sales because if you can't sell, and of course, you, you don't have to be a sort of pushy, aggressive salesperson like a car salesperson that'll actually put people off. But you're basically explaining the benefits of what you do and trying to get that empathy going. So that, and I always say to entrepreneurs, you know, start off with a service, which is what are you passionate about? Something you love to do, because the old expression, if you love what you do, you'll never do a day's work in your life. So you'll, if you're passionate about model railways, you're doing something in model railways. And you find somebody who has a problem, they're money rich, time poor. You say, well, let me solve that problem for you. Let me spend an hour mowing your lawn, grooming your dog, helping you find the right model railway. And um, at the end, did you get value for money? Was that you know, money well spent from your point of view? And then when it gets more advanced, it's you do things which make people generate more revenue for their companies or save their costs. So money is a very good way of keeping score, though the actual thing is time. So money and time, they're the, the two things where you help people. So you do something. I mean, let's say somebody needs a podcast doing. You say, well, you you personally would say, well, I do podcasts all the time. I know what I'm doing. Let me do it because I know what I'm doing. You know, you're better in other ways. You have certain skills and techniques and how does it work and and how do you then edit it and so on and so forth, which are very, very valuable to people. 
whoever they are. So a, a guy in a large company will say, well, let's get let's get uh, Richard to do our podcasts for us. And there they are, you got the start of a business. That's kind of the approach I take with people when I'm mentoring. Before anyone lines up, there are, I'm, I know people who help other people do podcasts. <laughs> I'm not one of them. I outsource a lot of the back end of this to other sure. people. And, but it's a very, it's a very, it's a very, um, and, and this is, uh, this is uh, actually the premise of this podcast is, uh, is that I, I, if I meet, come across someone who's interesting and you're on that list, I think if I'm going to have a conversation to find out more about you, why not share it with other people? Because it's sort of, it's a bit like giving other people to over, overhear a conversation in a pub that might be interesting. And provided I'm good at choosing people, I think mm. it, it works. Uh, absolutely right. I mean, content is just huge on the internet. There's, there's probably too much content. Getting content in context is the key thing. And then what most people do is they put something out there on YouTube, as I'm doing at the moment. You put it out there and you hope and you see if it gets attraction. If it helps 20 people, it helps 20 people. You've done some good. But if you've suddenly got 20 million viewers, then um, there's various ways of monetizing it after that. I, I got some good advice on YouTube from an absolutely fascinating guy called Scott Bradley, uh, because uh, Chris and I, my co-author, were doing marketing strategy for our students at um, City's University, uh, City Business School. And... Um, Obviously, we had to cover, you know, how does Coke beat Pepsi in the big marketing and so on, the big marketing stuff. So we'd covered all that. But I thought all these younger people are going to be interested in how do you make money out of YouTube. So there's this completely fascinating guy who I thoroughly recommend for a podcast, Scott Bradley, who is a jazz pianist. And he's about to give up being a jazz pianist. But he put a sort of ragtime version of some 18th shoes on YouTube and it went viral. Now he's got a whole thing called Postmodern Jukebox, where he's get his, he hasn't written any of the songs. They're all cover versions, but done in a jazz style or whatever and he's he's got you know millions of subscribers and had billions of hits so i actually flew out to los angeles specifically to talk to him about not how do you be famous on youtube because nobody really knows you can't predict it but uh, if you do turn out to have something that people really want how do you then monetize it and do some good in the world fascinating guy scott bradley thoroughly recommended I'll post a link in the show notes to the the book, the postmodern jukebox story, mm. because you mentioned it in one of your YouTube videos, and it's a classic thing of one le one thing leading to another. That this was um, is such an interesting story of someone building a an amazing career around a passion, and as you said, I think it was "Come on, Eileen," an old Dexter's Midnight yeah, right. runner song. But I wanted to come back to, given that you weren't driven to have your own business it just sort of happened by a sort of series of a slightly random walk. Quite often people who go into business are a bit shocked by the sense of responsibility and the challenges of it. And in, was it, were there moments in the early days when you were sort of holding your head in your hands thinking, my God, what have I got myself into? If you could talk about the, if you say, I don't know, the challenges of responsibility or realizing you don't have anyone to blame, there's no boss to mm -hmm. sort of dump responsibility on. Because I think it's a good idea to go into these things with your eyes open. And what, what are the downsides and how did you deal with them personally? Well, I was incredibly lucky because I had these, these two other guys. One was a, a really top technical guy who's, who's co-author of one of the first Unix books. We actually got his, his other author, Andy Rutter, as well. Then there was a guy that had, was good at computing, but also had several economics degrees or whatever. So there were the three of us sat there kind of cheering each other up. And my first job on the first morning was sell something. So, and I did, you know, literally 10 grand on the first morning. That was my target for six months. So it all seemed to develop a sort of life of its own. But we talk in the book about you having your cornerstones with you. So if you do, or at least one other person, a foil, an opposite, a bit like 
myself and Chris West. I'm an extrovert. He's an introvert. He's a writer and an, an academic almost, and uh, you know, very cerebral guy. Whereas I'm the outgoing, shouty one. If you've got somebody else to talk to, it makes it a lot easier. Of course, you have to have this uh, relentless belief that everything's going to work out because if you, you can talk yourself out of anything, especially the more introvert one. But and it is hard when you're on your own to motivate yourself. But just think of yourself in partnership with your clients. Because I know so many people that are working very successfully, essentially from home now, but they sometimes have some quite big teams working remotely, especially in these strange times. The instruction set was almost the dream startup. And I didn't have a bad day there. Sometimes I was exhausted. You know, I couldn't, didn't have time for a girlfriend, all of that. I used to fall asleep in the soup every time I took a lady out. And it, it was just almost textbook from day one to the end. So that was just incredibly lucky. Later startups, then you discover what the problems are. Um, either your idea is just not, nobody wants it, and you can't work out why. You've tried every sales technique in the world. I'm quite good at sales now. It doesn't work. Or you find the people you're working with aren't very nice. Like I've worked for some very interesting entrepreneurs along the way that, frankly, you know, in retrospect, I should have steered well clear of. Because when I speak to my students about this, which is a lot of the entrepreneurs you've heard of are not very nice people. You know, you admire them incredibly because they've done amazing things. But all you've got to do is watch films about Bill Gates and Steve Jobs and so on, or just observe Elon Musk. Now, what an interesting guy. What a great guy to learn from. But would I want to put my son in there as an employee? Probably not, because he's a bit sort of interesting, to put it politely. And I have worked with some very, very difficult characters. So it's really because it's a sense of power once people you know, have success and how they behave. And the, the psychological uh, the background to it is very interesting. So, but I try very hard when I'm, you know, explaining entrepreneurship to people or mentoring or doing whatever I do to point out the difference between right and wrong in my own definition, of course, and keep people on, on the good side. Because you don't have to be a total horrible person to succeed. That's a great myth of business. You've got to trample over people. So my little YouTube video, my first one, you know, I make it clear that to be a beer mat entrepreneur, as I call it, you're not one of these people that tramples over other people just to succeed because, you know, there's something wrong with that. You can be nice. You don't want to be a, a, a patsy, you know, just, you know, being bullied by other people. You, you need to stand up for yourself at times. But you don't have to be evil to succeed. And a lot of um, my deeper thinking about entrepreneurship is the difference between good and evil, to be, to be blunt about it. And am I a good person? And what have I done in the past that was wrong? And why? And why did I behave that way? So hopefully I can put this sense of, I don't know, sanity into the whole business of entrepreneurship. But I try and de-risk the whole thing. So I encourage people to start businesses at home in their spare time while they've got a day job. Then, of course, if your model railway business is earning enough, you can give up your job at the bank or the council, whatever it is you're doing, which is, you know, it's money in the bank. But this is we go back to mortgages again. You know, if you've got a mortgage, you've got to pay the mortgage. That's kind of the tyranny that, you know, the, the debt people have with you. But no, there's a huge spirit now, especially in these difficult times, of people literally just sat at home thinking, what am I going to do? So that's why I put my YouTube channel together. I'm just assuming you've got access to the internet and a beer mat. Here's a beer mat of mine. So um, you're literally starting from there. Where, where do you start? And, and then just be lucky. And you can't, you can't make your own luck, but I can show you how to notice when you are being lucky and to increase your chances. So that's why I put that quote from Gary Player in the first issue. Gary Player was a great golfer and he did a long putt and everybody said, great lucky putt, Gary. And he said, yeah, the harder I practice, the luckier I get. That's definitely my approach. But you do need resilience to be an entrepreneur, bouncing back, setbacks, 
and giving up when it turns out nobody wants your stuff. I've had a few of those, but um, but it's fun. It should be fun. It should be nice to people. Then they'll look after you if you've had a, a bit of a fall. Just to unpick that, one, one, one lesson Mike, Mike was talking about is the importance of going into business with partners, that a, a business that's just led by one person, a one person leader is very fragile because if you get sick or, you know, fall yep. in love or have an accident, the business is, is disabled. So, but also just having people to talk to and then, um, you know, making sure that you get your, get your culture, culture right. So, so in your case, as you got bigger, because you said you've got up to 150 mm. people before you sold the yep. first business if i understand correctly was right. there a sense just uh, the sort of later stages of that because running a 50 or 100 150 person business that's there's quite a lot of bureaucracy and processes mm -hmm. it's not all fun and games then by that so or maybe it was did you manage to keep the atmosphere fun or did you get stressed and sort of worry about pay rises and covering your fixed costs and that kind of thing or was it all well, plain sailing well no it wasn't what, well, we, we were in the right place at the right time. So I think we were profitable every single month. So And so sales for me was going very well. But your point about the bureaucracy, of course, there is a certain stage we have to worry about filling in forms and doing that kind of stuff. And, and in the BMAD Entrepreneur, we came to the conclusion that it's a small company up to about 25, 30 people, because you're all friends. You can all be in the pub on a Friday. Everybody knows what's going on. Then if you stumble over 30 to about 40, suddenly it becomes a big company and you don't know all the people and you have to have bureaucracy and so on, then individuals have to make a, a serious decision about, are they good at bureaucracy? Some people are. So let's take sales as a good example. I'm your classic, knock the door down, get the early stage, hunter salesperson. Sales management, I can do it, but it's not my favorite thing. So as soon as we grew a bit, I was told, go down to the next thing, Mike, we'll hire a sales manager. He'll manage the team who are on the phone every day, selling training and so on and so forth. So, you, you should have a good sense of your own strengths and weaknesses. And some people don't like a company bigger than 30. They don't like the fact they're going to not clock in every morning or whatever. But it, there is an area of bureaucracy. So when I mentor a company, I finally got to 25. I say, right, stop there and take a pause. 25 people. You have a big choice. And, you know, you can get one of either way, which is either grow it like Microsoft, in which case hire grown-ups, I call them. You know, proper people that have run proper companies and know how to do this stuff. Or keep it at 25 forever, double your prices, double your prices again, and then one day just turn off the lights and go home. And you've made enough money. You've got a villa and a yacht or whatever it is your aspiration was. So this is the nature of how enterprises start. Because the way we define it, we say, well, there's apprentice entrepreneurs, I call them, who are thinking of starting a business. I meet these all the time. I think of starting a business. Then as soon as somebody gives you money and they don't want it back at the end of it, you become a seedling. You're working from home. You may stay there forever. Maybe a seedling for the rest of your life. I've got plenty of friends who do that very successfully and they have million pound businesses. They just work from home. A sapling, we call it, is when you decide to get an office, mainly because you're all going to get together and have a chat, though, whether this is going to come back now or post lockdown, I just don't know. I mean, the company I'm, I'm working with at the moment, Akinova, had a little WeWork place and there's about 10 people and I used to go in there every day pretty well. Now we're all working remotely. What's the point of working in an office anymore? But when you've got an office, it's all a bit grown up. You've got premises and all of that. You call a sapling. And then you go to a mighty oak, as we call it, at 35 people. I'm not kidding. It's that small. Because if you get to, to 35 to 50, you've put the, the grown-ups in place. You've hired some proper people to do all the admin -y sort of bureaucratic stuff, which has to be done, you know, the accounts and all of that. Then you can get to 150 pretty quickly. Then there's another big quantum leap. But by then, when you get to 150 people, a beer mad entrepreneur, if they followed our book and have been successful, 
they have more money than they care about. I mean, it's not billions, but it's, you know, you're tidy. You don't have a mortgage anymore. You've, you can do what you want and maybe start another little company because you liked it when there were six of you in a basement and, you know, the, the plumbing leaked and, you know, you weren't sure if you're going to go broke the next day. But you see, some people are just born to do it, I think. But you can also teach entrepreneurship, which is what I do. So to explore a couple of topics there one is the teaching and mentoring and the second is like spotting sort of people you invest in because you you have mentioned you've invested in some other businesses i don't know how many angel investments you've done but it's a it's a very it's a in my case it was a very uh what's the word uh educational experience because the biggest mistake if you succeed in business is to think you've got the magic touch and that everything you Absolutely. touch is going to work and that quite often it's quite a shock to discover just because you've had one success it it doesn't mean that every, the follow-ups are going to succeed and i certainly made that that mistake personally and i but over the years i hope i've learned some lessons which still doesn't mean i'm perfect at it but when you're making engine investments what are the things that you used to sort of try and assess to help you decide whether you're going to invest or not what's ah. what's your mini checklist for angel investments when you well well i need to correct you because I, i've never done an angel investment and i never will uh so all i invest is my time i see so you so, so sometimes when you're mentoring you go beyond just giving a bit of advice and you become you get effectively equity in return for advice is that right well there have been various models but where i am now is um as I say, angel investment is a whole thing. We could do a whole podcast on how to do that. Do I, I do advise people how to pick sure. winners. And what I always say to people about angel investing, let's just cover that is. So if somebody says, well, you know, I've sold my company, I've got some money, I want to be an angel investor. I say, well, good. First thing is, as you rightly pointed out, it's a completely different job, investing in a company and running a company. And you and the best angel investors I know say, oh, I invest in 10 companies because I liked the entrepreneur. I just thought they were cool and fun. I like to hang out with them. And so I've got 10 little investments. It's not money I care about. So if they all go broke, which I assume they will, it was fun. You know, obviously I regret losing the money, but it's not the end of the world. I'm still, you know, my children still are going to private schools or whatever. And of the 10 in three years time, eight have gone broke, one staggering along, but one, oh my God, it, it's given me 25 times the money back. If you take that approach to angel investing, you'll never be disappointed. Now I got involved in startups on the basis of this will be fun selling this stuff. And sometimes I was paid, sometimes I got stock options, none of which ever came to anything. Some I did quite well out of, but now my model is, so the company I'm working for now, they are paying me an amount of money, which I'm very happy with, and I've got no equity in the company at all. Now this could change if they have another funding round. They could say, Mike, we're going to the next stage, we've taken on hundred million pounds or something. So do you wanna, they may say, thanks, it's been great. You've been really useful, or do you wanna carry on? So then I'll have a big decision to make. But uh, I'm a revenue guy. You hire me to get you new revenue. If I fail, I say, sorry. And I say, well, if I couldn't sell it, I think you have a problem with your, what you have because my sales skills haven't varied in 30 years. You know, I, I use the same techniques with people. Sometimes people bite my arm off. Sometimes they don't. And that's a good test. You see, the salesperson always knows. You're pushing on a door, does it fly open and people give you money somehow. If it's shut to you, well, yes, but, and whatever. And all I've learned in 40 years is how to spot the ones that aren't going to succeed quicker. And that's really my main skill, because I ask people for money in a nice way. And I look at the deal. Is it a deal? If I was them, would I buy this stuff from me? That's how I approach it. OK, so but, you, but even if you're not an ancient investor, it sounded like you, and, and you are an entrepreneur in residence or you teach at a, mm. a, a very well-established 
business school. So um, if you're trying to assess an entrepreneur, whether you're going to invest yeah. or not, what would you say the most important things you're you're looking okay. for? I'll ask you the question again, but removing removing the precondition that you have to be an angel investor. No, no, no. Absolutely. So how do you spot a winner? It's very simple. What they do. The people you get involved with uh, as an advisor, salesman, whatever, are the people you like. You like them personally. You enjoy their company and you think this is going to be fun. And of course, behind it is, well, this is an interesting area. I mean, I'm, I'm literally, I've been working in the insurance technology area for the last three months. I know rather more about insurance than I did before, but it was really because I liked the entrepreneur who founded it, Dr. Henri Winant, who I've known for 20 years. I met him when he was head of corporate venturing at Rolls-Royce, and we wrote an entrepreneurship book with him and his boss. And he's just a nice guy, and I like him. And I thought, well, I'll help him out. He said, well, I'll give you this, this amount of money. And it's going very well. I'm really, really enjoying it. What I'm finding interesting now is that I'm selling like I always used to sell, but only on Zoom. I'm not getting on the tube, getting on a plane, going to a hotel, all of that nonsense anymore. It's very efficient. It's not quite the same. I do like the face-to-face -face and let's go and have a drink and have dinner and so on. But my God, it's effective. So, and I'm doing it and, you know, it may stop tomorrow. It may go on for 10 years. I really don't know. It's just, I'm working with nice people. So it's people you like in a hot area. And if you're thinking, is this company any good? Ask the salesperson, speak to the salesperson, see what they're getting from the market going out there. Is it easy to sell? If it's hard to sell, then there's maybe something wrong with it. So sales is always the first test. So I teach sales skills, but really it's only hunting sales skills, how to speak to somebody you don't know who doesn't know what you do for the first time. Everything else is easy. Farming's easy. It's like, would you like another? Would you like fries with that? Would you like another um, mobile phone, whatever? So hunting is the key skill. There's not a lot to it. I teach it in, in about half a day if I string it out. But it's the skills that everybody needs to, well, just walk up to a stranger and introduce yourself. Find out in two minutes whether they like you or not. In the broadest sense, seem a nice person, like the sound of what you're selling, and then getting to a quick close. Well, let's just do a small thing. And it's not natural for most people. It's natural for me. But I spend most of my time teaching that because the whole, yeah, I mean, I teach the university. It's, it's what was until two days ago called Cass Business School. But they've had to rebrand it to Cities uh, Business School now because Sir John Cass turned out to be a slaver. It's like the most extraordinary thing. So we've literally rebranded in the last two days. So that's an interesting time. But I had 300 students from around the world. And I can spot winners at 500 yards. The ones with the magic word we always say in Biomet, gumption. That sort of get up and go and let's have a try and do this and do that. And oh, I've fallen over. It doesn't matter. I'll get up again. But the ones who really enjoy life. There's some people there just, you know, sent by their parents to the university, spending a lot of money. They get a nice degree. You know, who knows what they're going to do next. But I, I, mean, I was told, and I shouldn't say this as a figure, that when I did my marking, I could give 25% first class. More than that, it's like I get questions asked or less than that. But I could tell you out of the 309 students, the 25% or the, you know, what's 25% of 300? It's 75, 80 students. I would employ immediately if I was doing something I thought, because they're fun and they got, got that bit of get up and go. And um, not everybody has it. Now, some people are born to work in a large organization. Let, let's make this absolutely clear. So, I mean, some people in a pub, I'm thinking, yep, you should work at a council and stay at a council forever. You love it. It's your thing. I wouldn't last 10 minutes there because I'd uh, upset somebody or get frustrated with the bureaucracy. So, but big company people always say, look, 
What's your business on the side? What's your passion? So let me ask you, Richard, when you're not doing this, what's your thing you like to do that's nothing to do with work? Just name, name anything you like, a hobby or a pastime or anything you, you just find interesting. Well, it's, it's, I, mean, I, I'm, I do multiple things, but as, apart from various activities of which this is one to do with promoting entrepreneurship, mm-hmm. uh, supporting entrepreneurship, because I believe it's a sort of, it's not undiscovered these days, but so many people could benefit from an entrepreneurial approach to life, which is much mm. wider than simply starting oh, yeah. a business. It's an idea of having personal responsibility for your life, realizing that you can have an impact. And if you see a problem, not thinking, blaming someone else, looking in the mirror, thinking, what can I do about it together with my personal network? So, you know, I, I'm very passionate about the idea that, you know, there's a way of living which is more satisfying than normal, which is about taking responsibility and taking action. Um, <laughs> this could turn into a reverse podcast where sure. I talk for, talk for 25 minutes, but that's a sign of a good salesperson. You ask questions and you listen intelligently because, the, the stereotype of the salesman is the, the guy, usually a guy who gabbles away and talks too much. And a good salesman has two ears mm. and one mouth and he listens and he, she asks the right questions. And actually, one of the things I noticed in our prior podcast correspondence was you asked for critical feedback of your tester mm. video. And again, I think there's a lesson there, which is um, perhaps you could explain why it's so important to ask people to criticize your ideas, hopefully constructively. That wh- Why is it so, so, such a good idea to get critical feedback on whatever it is you're offering? Oh, absolutely. Because you produce essentially a piece of art, whether it's a podcast or a book or whatever, and you want people's feedback. Now, some feedback, and, and then you take, because you've got to be robust. You, you can't be the sort of person, how dare you criticize, you know, the video, because you know, then you've lost it completely. So your comments were extremely useful. Now, some I agreed with, some I didn't. And from, if I speak to another person, I'll say the complete opposite. See, this is how you're using mentors really well. So you can't get everything right for everybody. No model works exclusively. But having somebody pick something to pieces is very good for the soul. Because you really think so. Well, am I going to say, no, no, Richard, I disagree with you. I think I should leave it as it is because then you can have a debate about it. Uh, and, but then at the end of the day, you put the your piece of art out there and you you hope. And if 20 people like it, 20 people like it, you've done some good. You know, we sold a lot of copies of the Beer Mad Entrepreneur because it was of its time in 2002. And I got hilarious stories about how we got to the top of Amazon, you can't do it now. And just, it was the universe aligned for us at that book at that time. And it sent me and Chris off into completely different career paths based on the fact that somehow we've written one of the best selling business books in the world. I mean. I have no idea why that happened. Just like Scott Bradley has no idea why a particular track, Thrift Shop, not the first one with, come on Eileen, Thrift Shop, which is badly shot, that got a million hits and he has no idea why, but he's brilliant at, if you do have success. So with my YouTube channel, your input was very useful. Some of which I'll take on board, some of it I won't, but you know, because as I say, I'll get five conflicting bits of advice from people. But at the end of the day, all I'm trying to do with the podcast is get it in front of as many people as possible to see if it goes viral. If it doesn't, you know, I put my beer mat stuff up there. I've done some good. So that's why I thought the more entertaining it is, the more broadcast quality it is. That's why I got it animated. The less it's about me talking to people and just interviewing entrepreneurs, because that's great. But if there's a thousand entrepreneur interviews, which one do you watch? I thought, no, literally, I would have step-by-step using little animated figures. You're sat there, all you've got is a beer mat, and I hope it's going to work. 
So all I'm in the process of doing now is trying to show it to as many people as possible, including government, saying, look, it's a free YouTube channel. Tell everybody, why not? Unless you hate it. So, but no, feedback is vital. I mean, I've had people take the beer mad entrepreneur apart, you know, send me long emails about how it's complete rubbish now. <laughs> um, good for them. I mean, you know, if I get into the mode of, so how many best-selling books have you written then, you know, and they're mostly anonymous on the internet. That's the hilarious thing. You know, something like you, we could have a discussion because I said, well, from your perspective, my, I know who you are and we can have a grown-up conversation. We can hopefully agree to disagree about something. You say, no, you should have a green one. I say, no, it's got to be a yellow one and whatever. But then we can have a pint and, and just and talk about stuff as nice people. Yes, but, I mean, um, I, I certainly, I think, I certainly, must, and I, I, I appreciate it. And obviously, I, in writing my hopefully constructive feedback, I, I reckon you're very well established and you're obviously you know you don't have an ego problem otherwise you wouldn't have asked for critical feedback but quite often it's certainly a mistake i made when 20 or 30 years ago that it was almost like my business idea was my my beautiful baby and don't you dare criticize it and it was such a mistake and i because one of the reasons to get critical feedback is a it might be right you know maybe you missed something and it's it can help you improve your product because that's product management 101 is you know to iterate see what people like, work on the problems and fix the problems and do anything people like. But the second thing is that it may be you disagree with the feedback, you disagree with the criticism, but it strengthens your arguments because it's like a sales conversation. So I said, well, I don't understand why why the knob is a, a twist knob rather than a press knob. And you say, well, we tried. And then you explain and you say, well, 70% of our customers are old and they don't like pressing because they used to twist or whatever it is. But sometimes you're reinforcing the way you're doing it because you disagree with the feedback and other times it's absolutely right. And it's also a mindset. The way to get good at things is mm. to listen and not just be arrogant and assume you know best. Yeah, and then understand yourself, which is if people are disagreeing with something, why did you make that decision personally? Was it coming from a good place or a bad place? Now, of course, we all want to be a maverick, which is say, no, no, I'm right about what I say. You've got to be kind of right about everything to be an entrepreneur in one way, but have the confidence. Um, and you may change the world or not. You just don't know. I mean, the, the quote that I, I tell everybody is from the great Hollywood screenwriter, William Goldman, who wrote a brilliant book called Adventures in the Screen Trade, because they asked him about scripts. How can you tell from a script it's going to be a successful movie? I get the same question about how can you tell from a business plan it's going to be a successful business? And William's response was, in Hollywood, nobody knows anything. You can do all the prep you like, um, but until you ask somebody for $5 for a ticket, that's when you find out whether people like it. And then I, I do the rather, uh, I don't know if this is all true, but I talk about the, the film Casablanca where they had two stock actors who hated each other. Script was awful. Nobody said, that's the worst ending I've ever seen. And whereas there's other ones where they analyzed it to death. At the end of the day, you see, I'm so inspired by Scott. He just puts stuff out there um, that works for him. He feels proud of everything he does he monitors like crazy. Of course, it's very clever, which is which songs work in which areas. So when he tours, who's going to watch what and so on. I mean, the thinking behind it. But the best thing about Scott, which probably doesn't come out of his book, from my point of view, talking about, you know, uh, being nice to people, is that when the coronavirus happened and all his musicians were off the road and they're all like desperate, he put together some online sessions where all the money, you know, like 20 people of an evening, they had a, a fake prom. So you just tuned in, you could pay what you liked. There was no fixed price. And if you liked to tip a particular artist, we saw about 30 artists over a weekend, all that money went to all his musicians who were 
it paid their rent. And he did that not thinking, I better be nice to him. It's just, it's what he does. He's made a lot of money out of postmodern jukebox and he's doing a nice thing just because it's him. But then, of course, when he gets back on the road, the loyalty he'll have from those musicians, the best in the world, and from all the people like me are tuning in and saw somebody new and got excited about a different artist, you know, he'll reap the benefits of that when he's out on tour again. But that's just Scott. He's got a good heart. And, you know, I hope you get to podcast him or talk to him and just meet him because he's just a jazz musician. And he was about to give up because he was struggling in New York, as everybody does. And now, you know, he lives in a lovely house in Los Angeles and, well, he's, he's in a rented house because his old house, well, it's a long story. Anyway, so nice guy. And be nice. It's, it's a tough thing to say. And, you know, I'm not saying I've been perfect all my life, but I've seen some pretty unpleasant people. I make a joke about I actually worked for the devil himself once. It's somebody who's now passed away, so I can talk about it. It was a great story over a pub. Possibly the most evil man I ever met. And, you know, it was a very difficult time in my life. I mean, I made lots of money out of it somehow. I thought, never again. I was really stressed out. Whereas now, you know, I do a job I love. Money's coming in. I've got no idea why. I'm happy if I never made another penny. And I just thought, I just want to put everything I know onto the internet somewhere. And YouTube is very important because um, if you take our son, James, who's 23, graduating MSc in chemistry, brilliant guy, doesn't want to be a chemist. I got him actually an internship at the company I'm working in now. So he's doing sales support then, loving it, doing really well. But what's extraordinary about him is that we have a very advanced pub quiz team in Hampstead full of people about my age and him. He knows more than we do on certain stuff. Now, where has he learned all this stuff? He doesn't read books. He doesn't watch the television. He's learned it all from YouTube. That's how he's learned cool stuff based on the recommendation of others. That's why YouTube is so important. Um, so that's why I'm totally focused on YouTube. I may never get it right. I mean, the more advice I get from people like you and I try this and try that, but I'm, what I assume is that I'll just put these episodes out and then suddenly one will go viral and I have no idea why, but that's the one where everybody was just sharing it because it's peer recommendations at work. It's a fascinating model and it's new. I mean, I remember when there wasn't an internet or email, I'm that old. It's only in the last few years we've been able to do this stuff. But now is the biggest opportunity in the world ever because it's so desperate. You know, coronavirus, what's happening? There's going to be empty shops. There's going to be um, empty theatres, this, that, and the other people with no whatever. So you could take a very grim view of it. But my view is those that have gumption and think, right, either I've got money or I can generate money quickly by providing services, they're the people who are going to win. I mean, I've got a conference call with my boss at the university because... You know, not only have they had to change the name, which is pretty you know, difficult stuff, they, you know, I had 309 foreign students, essentially, about 90% of them were from abroad, coming to London, which is a great place to come, learning and having an excellent time, most of them. Are they going to come back? Or are we going to teach them remotely? What's going to happen? It's all different. It's new. It's what are we going to do? It's a, an apocalyptic time for everybody. But if you have the positive mindset and probably my biggest piece of advice is not have a good idea because every idea is brilliant. Everyone I've ever heard, I've thought, someone's going to make a fortune doing that. Is it you? Let's have a chat. There's a bit of mentoring. Is get your foil. Get your opposite. So whatever you're good at, they do the other stuff. The stuff you're bad at, they do, and so on. So me and Chris, we're perfect fools. A bit like Lennon and McCartney, who once said, got to admit it's getting better, can't get any worse. That's John and Paul. So if you have your foil, who's good at all the stuff you're bad at, like I don't write the books, 
and Chris and I have very robust discussions about a topic, sales or whatever, an aspect of sales. And I'm fighting it from the corner of, you know, will I get more laughs live? Will people like me more? Will it create more attraction? That's my bag. His is, does it actually make sense? We've never had an argument in our life, but we come to a consensus between the two of us where we both agree that hits both things. So, so my top piece of advice is not have a brilliant business idea. I could give you 50 if you wanted, but find your foil, your soulmate, your business soulmate. Sometimes it's your life soulmate, somebody who's the complete opposite of you, who's good at the stuff that you hate to do. So, yeah, so, so, so there are so many directions I could take this and I, I, I've, we've got about 10 minutes before mm -hmm. our allotted hour. I always try to keep it about an hour because sure. that, and I, one of the I just like draw attention to something that I've, I've read and seen so many different things about entrepreneurship taught it a lot myself. But one of the things I really picked up that I don't think I saw anyone else express quite so clearly is the importance of this sort of gumption, this get up and go, this internal drive, which I actually believe people can unlock in themselves because often everyone, everyone who survives day to day has got enough energy to get themselves through the day. And it's a sort of it's a human instinct. And I think a lot of people don't believe it's about self-belief but that that need to unlock that inner drive and it's not only for entrepreneurs in fact you can be a, a policewoman you can be a, a civil servant with get up and go who gets more done than other people so it's un unlocking that desire for impact within you is so important and but I, I and so I'm really glad that you drew it's not that I didn't know that before but sometimes it takes a little bit of someone else saying it to realize how true it is. So I appreciate that very much. And in your in your YouTube content, one of the things you've done in the in the two clips I've seen is they've got high production values. You've you know, even even if I'm not quite sure what the destination is, and I know that you've tried really hard. You know, it's got these great animations, and you know that's part of the brand that you know the sort of Mike Southern approach to this is to do it properly, and you know that that also builds confidence and doing things somehow surpassing it's better than your average youtube video was that intentional you wanted to sort of get across that you're serious about this uh, definitely right and what happened was i was doing a, a zoom thing for a bunch of people from the west midlands and it's all creative industries people and that's where i met philippe from waxter who was an animator in fact there are two of them on there and i said to them both look here's what i'm doing um can you help me i will pay you i, I may not pay you what you would get from microsoft to do a proper one but Let's do something you can do in time that suits you. Then if I ever get any money, you'll get that money. So that's the deal I've done with Philippe. So he's probably put an enormous amount of effort into those things. A, because it's fun for him. And, you know, I would say, look, if you've got a customer comes in with, with proper money, put me to one side. If you work to people's time, you can do it. But I want this to look broadcast quality because you can get away with YouTube in a bit, just you and, a, and an iPhone and you can be a YouTube star. But if you want to be taken seriously, it's um, YouTube first and then something like Netflix. That's where I want to go with this. I and mean, I'm very lucky to know Ricky Gervais a little bit and his story about how his journey, and he came into it quite late and how he got afterlife on Netflix as it happened. is just a story of success. And now he's doing exactly what he wants with his life. See, because this thing about gumption, um, you find you need your gumption when something goes wrong. I, I know you had two bits of gumption I, I noticed from your your telex talk first was you decided to come to poland i mean i don't know what the motivation was for that maybe you fell in love or whatever so that was a big change and you could have sort of disappeared into a hole or whatever then you had problems in your marriage you know which many people have i'm fortunate it hasn't happened to me but 
you could have gone into a hole and disappeared. You thought, no, I'm going to get up and go and do stuff and do stuff that you feel um, represents you well. And if it's good, if you build it, they will come. So because your journey is very similar to many people I've seen in your business, which is let's help the world based on, well, things didn't go perfectly for me. So, and here's how I got through it. Then you have an air of authority. So, I mean, if you can go to Poland, learn Polish, get married, have a breakup and still be pitching away, then good for you. So you clearly have gumption. So well done. You passed the gumption test. <laughs> Thank you. I mean, I, I, I have many, many failures and weaknesses. And I think this self, another thing might you've mentioned, which is really important is be rigorous on yourself. Don't beat yourself up, but be objective about your weaknesses as well as your strengths. And, you know, finding other people, working with people who are better than you at something is so liberating that I think I, I also went to what are called public schools in the UK way back. And this individual competitiveness is very strong in that culture. So mm -hmm. it's all about how good you are compared to other people. Mm -hmm. And the, the beauty of success in business is it's about getting together with people who are better than you mm -hmm. and not being jealous and supporting them. And, it, and it's, a, it's a liberating thing because to you, you get away from this, am I the best in class? And it's like, is the group I'm in, is my team going to be relatively competitive? Which isn't about crushing the rest of the world, but it is yeah. about being in the, in the group of people who succeed. Um, so I, we, just in the closing minutes, I wanted to, just because you're going to be talking to the director of what used to be called the Cass Business School, sure. <laughs> um, that one of the things I've done is for Cambridge University has set up an alumni organisation to support business and social entrepreneurship mm -hmm. among Cambridge University alumni, current students and others. I wrote that uh, this has been going for about five years and we've done meetings all over the world in the sort of TEDx model where, with a local leader. And we do meet from time to time in London. Do you think that the... CAS, alum, the formerly, they will be, I don't know what they'll be alumni of now. It's mm -hmm. like Prince, you know, the, mm -hmm. the business school that used to be called CAS. Um, yeah. Do you think that they might, there might be an interest in a collaboration with Cambridge University to do a joint event in London sometime next year? Well, yeah, I mean, we're called, okay, we've been rebranded this week as Cities Business School because they're City okay. University, which we're a part of. What happened with CAS was, so John CAS, who was a philanthropist back then, uh, started various foundations, and then the, the Cass Foundation, yes. which was very highly thought of in 2002, gave a bunch of money to City University to call it Cass Business School. Of course, now we're discovering that, you know, circumstances yes. are different. So, um, no, that's what I'll be saying to my, um, the, the, the head of the business school. Collaboration is good. We all have the same problems. There's no uh, competition between universities, really. I mean, maybe in, in between London and whatever. But, um, you know, the more they cooperate, the better it is, because, you know, teaching has been done a certain way for a long time. This will change. The model of the university will definitely change. A bit like the schools you and I went to have radically changed. I mean, school I went to is now completely co-educational. I didn't see a girl till I was 18. It was, it was a bit scary, really. Um, so absolutely, we should do a joint event. We can do it remotely now. We know how to do that via Zoom. That works very well in certain circumstances. I've been a big live guy for years. I mean, when the book came out, I went on the speaking circuit for about 12 years and earned a lot of money doing that. Those days are gone, I think. There's nothing quite like the big thrill of the crowd and, you know, up in front of an audience and knocking them dead. I mean, I've been a musician all my life. I've fronted bands and been a comedian and all sorts, you know, so standing up there getting a round of applause is very important to me, rather less so to Chris West. So we do a great double act. So yeah, collaboration, absolutely. Because these brands are very good, Cambridge, City University, the business school, there's a lot of alumni who can solve the problems. They can say, well, 
you know, in retrospect, you could have done things a bit better, but, you know, I'm now running this company and knowledge is new. There's a whole new bunch of students coming through who have different approaches. They're more international. And at CAS, as it was, I saw the creme de la creme, people from literally all around the world, lots of Chinese, lots of everywhere, Americans, whatever, all people looking to be, you know, something. And they all had that entrepreneurial spirit. And the reality of their situation, as I discovered, was uh, they were spending, well, they do spend a fortune to come to university in, in the UK. At Cass City, it's £18,000 a year. And their parents somehow have money. Maybe they're big corporate people or they're in business. I've met plenty of magnates from around the world with packaging companies in Turkey and all of that. And they're spending all this money. And the intention is that young Igor or Inga is going to come back to their family business and run the family business later. Now, whether they want to do that the whole of their life is a different thing. But my, my view generally when I speak to them is like, you know, out of respect to your parents having spent all this money, the least you could do is bring all the Cambridge or city magic back to where you're from, Kazakhstan and so on. So, yeah, let, collaboration. Let, absolutely. Let, let's let's have a further let's, conversation let's, on this. I, I mean, this is an example of real life, let's say, entrepreneurship. You have an idea, you see whether it's a good idea and uh, let's do a pilot. And whether yeah. it's Q, Q4 this year or Q, because I, I teach a bit in the judge in the Masters of Entrepreneurship, I do it. It's a bit like you at a lesser scale, I suspect, at the Judge Business School at Cambridge University and some others sort of coming in doing workshops. So I've got the Cambridge University alumni, the Judge Business mm -hmm. School, and we do events in London from time to time. So I think the idea of getting together, mixing people up, you know, what's the worst that can happen? Everyone turns around and says, Richard, Mike, you're idiots. This is horrible. But, you know, we, <laughs> I, 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 I always start with low expectations, like, like even if it's a disaster, at least I tried. And usually you can be, if you set, you aim high, but also recognize that it may not, it may not work out as a good way to go. Any final, any final thoughts or recommendations? Obviously I'm going to share links to your YouTube channel, sure. encourage people to get in touch, but any final things you'd like to say to an audience primarily interested in entrepreneurship and innovation? Well, definitely do it. Get off your backside and do it today and then completely de-risk it. Because remember, the model of the instruction set was I arrived on the morning and people look at me expectantly, you know, sell something quickly. So I literally picked up the phone to somebody who liked us from the, you know, customer from the old company. I sold a course we hadn't written yet for money up front. That's how you sell services. It's like, do you trust me to do this for you? You know, I mean, a lot of my students have done babysitting. So if they trust you with their children, they probably trust you to mow the lawn or set up their model railway or whatever. Get half the money up front and see what happens, or ask for half the money up front. If they give it to you, good. If they don't, back to the pub and get another beer mat out. But if they <laughs> like you, they'll give you money, and they'll forgive you if things don't go quite as well. But you can definitely do it now. If you can get a good day job that pays you a salary in these hard times, definitely do that. If not, well, even in your spare time, what's your passion? What do you love to do when you're not running whatever it is you'll do for somebody else? You know, because... You can do that in the evenings, earn some money, do some good. And who knows, maybe you can do that forever one day. Wouldn't that be your dream to, to, to spend your life doing something you just love? So yeah, we we're record I'm recording this podcast in uh, July 2020 when the world's in a very, very sort of fragile, uncertain state. And it's very nice to end on a sort of optimistic, upbeat note. So thank you very much. And you're based in London in the UK, are you more or less? Yeah, uh, I, I live in Hampstead in central London. So, but I do love to travel. I mean, I'd say Krakow's on my bucket list. One of the places I want to go. I've been to Warsaw many times. 
Mm-hmm. A few good well, you have there, an but... open invitation, but I was going to say next time I'm traveling through London, I'll, the moment yeah, I know we'll have, a, have lunch or we'll go to a pub, <laughs> drink some beers I hope when it's safe and let's do an event together. So Project Cashmere listeners, I've, I've been talking to Mike Southern. If you've got any feedback, as usual, um, get back in touch. If you love the show, give us a positive review on iTunes. If you hate it, send me an email and uh, we'll look forward to meeting you again in the future. Mike Southern, thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Richard. Thank you for listening to another episode of Project Kashmir, brought to you by me, your host, Richard Lucas. If you enjoyed listening, check out additional podcasts on our webpage, projectkashmir.com, or on iTunes, where you can also subscribe so you never miss an episode, and also leave us a five-star review if you feel like it. We welcome feedback and suggestions of new interviewees, whether as comments on projectkashmir.com or via our page on Facebook. This podcast was produced by Adam Zuber. Thank you again for listening. You know, vision is all great and well, but execution is actually the key. The actual process of meeting those people, working with them, is in itself a huge reward. Interaction between the university and the business high-tech community is absolutely fundamental. Diversity creates a healthy ecosystem, and I think that I'm seeing more and more that diversity. It's not just about individuals, but about new individuals. It's about, you know, um, new initiatives. Sometimes they overlap with each other. Sometimes they might be cannibalizing each other. But the reality is that you want to have as many as possible because that accelerates the big picture. We're not going to have everyone in the world here. And in this connected world, we don't need everyone here. But but the, the you know the artists and the designers, the creatives, they're very much part of what, we, what we've got and what we need. So if you're listening again somewhere else in the world and you feel you, you, you're looking for a place where your, your, your creative juices will run, then, then, then this city is certainly a place where you can find yourself. And I think you can make history in Poland. I think you can be part of something much bigger than you could be a part of in the United States right now, not just from a, you know, going out to San Francisco to make Silicon Valley richer, but, but making a new part of the world um, grow at a much faster rate, be a much bigger part of that community and, and making it wealthy, not just for wealth's sake, but for uh, a purpose, which is to make that country's government stronger, 